Christ Your Company today. We're taking a dive into Christian history, 20th century Christian history, what happened in Australia in the middle half of last century. And I don't know if you can call it history because I was alive for some of it, but uh, Hugh Chilton has done his PhD on the topic and uh, he's kindly agreed to come in and answer our questions on evangelicals and the end of Christendom. Uh, Hugh, we're thinking about first, though, the pastor's heart mm. and your personal pastor's heart and, um, and what's God been doing on your heart? Yeah, thanks, Dominic, and great to be with you and your audience today. So um, my wife and I had our third child during lockdown. It's the day after you know we've come out of it, but um, uh, we had a, a baby boy. So how old? He is uh, today, actually, he's two months old. Right. So, yeah, and we're thinking about what to name him, and um, we deliberated a lot about this, and um, we were deliberating right up into the birthing suite, if you need to know that. But um, we settled on the name Caleb um, because we think that, it's it's going to get harder mm. to be a Christian mm. in the 21st and 22nd century, most probably, and uh, it's going to need young people and old people to be wholehearted, and the name Caleb is wholehearted. And so we thought um, that that's our prayer for him, and it's our prayer for ourselves too, that we wouldn't be conformed, but would be wholehearted and adventurous in following Jesus in the season in which uh, he's placed us, um, because um, there's an adventure to follow there. And so I think that's the thing that we've been thinking about. I, I'm a teacher by day. That's mm-hmm. my main gig, thinking about, you know, what, what kind of heart will young people need into the future mm-hmm. and, um, and how do I need to tend to my own heart um, for, for this time that God's placed me in. Well, I mean, you've just written your PhD on evangelicals and the end of Christendom. You've got a baby born into post-Christendom and... Um, I mean, would you rather he have been born in 1960? The music would have been better, I think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think it's it's naive to look back with rose-coloured glasses on the past. There are a lot of aspects of culture, of Christian culture, that I think uh, it's good that we've moved past. I think about my own church that I'm part of in West Ride, really diverse, multicultural, uh, engaged in all sorts of issues. And, uh, and so I think, you know, there are a lot of great things about being alive today. I think the, the challenges then were probably more fixed and predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just the flux of the environment we live in, particularly for young people, how bombarded they are by all sorts of different messages. It's a pretty hard time to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I think I sort of make the case in the book, you know, crises didn't develop in 2020 or 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been through these challenges before. And, um, and as I said, God calls out from his people particular responses uh, to the crises of the day. So, he, he is he is born where he's born and when he's born, and um, and may God give him the grace to meet the hour. So, how did evangelical leaders respond to the collapse of Christendom in Australia? Sure, yeah. Well, I think it's probably first helpful to describe just what that what was, is, what it, what it was. What was the collapse? Because we sort of assume, you know, in our culture, and I think in our, in our as Christians as well that Christianity's never really had that deeper purchase on the Australian imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, that it was probably bound up with respectability and things, but, you know, once people um, could see past that, it all sort of crumbled away. But what I found and was quite surprised to find was that up until the 60s, you know, most people thought of themselves as part of a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. 
uh, part of a, a, a world of Christian nations, greater Christian Britain. They thought of themselves very unproblematically. I mean, that was one of the big ideas I got reading your thesis, that um, uh, the national identity, much, much stronger than I feel it today. Y- yes, yeah, feeling a sense of being Australian. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Australian as part of Britain. As yeah. part of Britain and as part of a what you might call... Um, you know, a, a greater Christian Britain, uh, not so much a colony, but part of a um, part of Christendom, mm-hmm. uh, a family of nations. And so, um, you know, even if people were atheists, they very happily assented the proposition that Australia was a Christian nation and opposed to um, atheistic regimes like communism. And that and that was held, you know, across the political spectrum. So, you know, you've got Labour leaders talking about this mm. Christian country of ours. Mm. Um, it was held across um, a whole lot of different. Um, different aspects of, of life. So the kind of moral codes, the, the rituals, the, the way people spent their time, um, people played in Christian sporting teams, uh, we didn't have Sunday trading, all these sorts of markers of a, a Christianized culture. And, um, and that was assumed, you know, at the end of the 50s with the Billy Graham crusade, which is where my book begins mm-hmm. in 59. It was just assumed that that was how things would continue, that the 60s would be like the 50s, but better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so as we know, um, that wasn't the case. And so the 60s, the, the 60s and 70s was really a period when all of those assumptions about what it meant to be Christian in Australia and what it meant to be Australian mm-hmm. came pretty rapidly undone. Mm. So you tackle a number of different leaders, um, uh, if you like from people like Fred Nile on the right, right across to the, um, the whole Jesus movement um, on, on the left, and, uh, and talk about how different people respond um, just give us a bit of an overview of your take. Yeah. Mm. Sure. So I think one of the, the really interesting things about exploring uh, individuals and movements and groups of people is you see that they don't, they don't fit categories neatly. And what I found was that um, evangelical responses to crises really covered a broad spectrum. Mm. And so, you know, if you wanted to sketch that out on a spectrum, on one hand, you've got people like Fred Nile, mm-hmm. uh, who really responded in quite a... Um, now, some people won't might know, not know who Fred Nile is. Um, we, we're going around the world, sure. so tell us about him. Yeah, so he's uh, coming up this November, 40 years almost continuously as a member of the Legislative Council in New South Wales, our, our upper mm-hmm. house in our state parliament. He's called the father of the house. And, um, and probably one of the most prominent kind of Christian conservative figures. If you wanted to equate him to somebody overseas, you might say a Jerry Falwell type, although mm-hmm. the, the similarities aren't, aren't absolute. And um, you actually go to some degree pains to distance from the, this, if you like, just taking the stereotype of mm. America or the, the UK. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's that spectrum. So, you know, being equated to, um, stereotypes overseas is, isn't helpful. So, uh, so you've got him at, at one end and, you know, his response to the, the, particularly the moral changes of the 60s and 70s, the, you know, the, um, the collapse of norms around uh, what gets shown on TV and printed in the press and so forth is, uh, is to call people to stand up and be counted mm-hmm. uh, and appeal to a broader, a broader consensus than just evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So working across um, denominational divides and, uh, and more broadly as well to call people together to say, you know, we don't agree with this and we want to um, make our, our voice heard. So he was involved in the Festival of Light, bringing that to Australia and, and then ended up starting a, a political movement and elected in 1981. And, and so, Christian citizen was a big kind of motif for him, in particularly his early life. Yeah. yeah. And his maiden speech in Parliament as well. Yeah, I was struck just reading that speech in 81. 
the most common word there isn't moral or family or values, uh, it's citizen. And I think these people don't emerge from nowhere. He grew up in the Christian Endeavor movement, which I was, again, surprised to discover. I hadn't heard of it at all. I grew up in the church, uh, but it was this worldwide really... Kind of like Christian Boy Scouts or Christian Girl Scouts. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Huge global movement begun in the in the 1880s in the US. Um, huge movement. And he, he grew up in that movement and ended up directing it. And, uh, and it had a very strong sense of activism. You know, if you think about one of the defining marks of evangelicalism, it's, it's that they're active in the world um, and, and a really strong sense of citizenly duty. They are here to contribute to society, to speak truth to power, um, to cooperate uh, and to contribute to, to society. So he had that strong sense. And for him, the, the, the way of contributing was to, um, to mobilize people to take a stand against what he thought was a, a hijacking of the best of Australian culture and, um, and uh, you know, a collapse of those, those moral norms. Mm. I mean, and, I mean as, as you described it, there, was, there were fights about no smoking, no drinking, no, no work on the Sabbath, and we think, well, I'm a little bit more relaxed about those <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, um, sometimes the, the contests and the battles, you, you look back and you think, was that really worth, um, worth the fight over? But I also found that um, some of the things that Christians were at the forefront of um, responding to were things that you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody uh, um, not opposing today. So, for instance, outlawing child pornography. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, there was a campaign around that, which yeah. seems... seems um, startling that 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 wasn't something that was obviously a problem um so um so they're engaged in a lot of different issues and um and that form i think of of mobilization of protest of um political involvement is one one form of response there but as i said there's a spectrum now you use the word in your title um evangelicals and the end of christendom and then uh you you do the case study on fred nile a number of the others i mean i don't know is Fred Nile an evangelical? Well, I think you'd have to ask him, and he would he would say he he is. Um, I haven't sp- I interviewed him for the book about um, eight years ago, but I haven't spoken to him uh, much since. But um, yeah, I mean, I think his his formation in Christian Endeavour and in the method and in the congregational church and so forth um, uh, very much connected to the broader pan-evangelical movement. And I think some of those marks about, you know, an emphasis on the cross, on the centrality of scripture, on conversion and activism really do fit uh, his profile. But obviously he's operating in in parliament and speaking out on a whole range of issues on which evangelicals would come to very different positions. Yeah. I mean, I, I just asked because I became a Christian. Well, you, you say 1981 he, uh, he made a speech in parliament. I became a Christian in 85, and so I'm, I'm a young man in my 20s at a university church and um, uh, and hearing his statements in the public arena and not really identifying mm. with them mm. and feeling like culturally where I'm at as a young Christian in my 20s, he's saying quite different things. And remember um, as a young journalist, I, I rang him up. Um, and I was able to get through because I was reading from our media organisation and, and instead of asking him for an interview, he, he'd just done a press conference where he said, Christians and other decent people want to stand and condemn this kind of behaviour in King's Cross. And I rang him up and said, I just didn't feel comfortable about what you said about Christians and other decent people because 
I'm not a decent person. I'm a sinner before the Almighty. Mm. And he just kind of shut me down and pushed me away in that conversation. Whereas I was ringing up to try Mm. and be, I'm on your side, I'm on your team, and first step before getting grace is getting sin. (laughs) Does that fit with your, when you did the profile on him? Yeah, I I think he certainly saw the world in kind of almost Manichaean terms. Everything was a, a, a struggle and you had to take sides. And I think... Um, yeah, I, I kind of felt like by pointing out that I disagreed with him on sinfulness, I got put into the bad category. Yeah, yeah, yeah perhaps. Um, yeah, and I think he was also... I think he also found uh, perhaps a, a frustration when people... Um, you know, didn't stand up and be didn't stand up and weren't counted for some of these, um, you know, on some of these moral issues, and um, and perhaps, uh, you know, and perhaps found that um, that evangelicals could focus too much on, you mm. know, saving souls as opposed to you know saving the nation. So yeah, but a, an interesting an interesting character, remarkably successful actually. Mm. Forty years in Parliament, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, had held the balance of power in many ways. Um, and also, interestingly enough, attracted you know non-Anglo supporters. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that he said to me when I interviewed him was that a number of people who've migrated to Australia from other countries where they've been persecuted for being Christians have been his most vocal supporters because they've assumed Australia is a Christian nation and and they want to get behind politicians trying to keep it so. But he's certainly you know a, a character that evokes strong responses. And what I've been trying to say is that he's more complex, but also the whole the whole movement is much mm. more complex than just that particular response. Let's turn to another figure, Marcus Sloan, former Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. Give us the big picture on him. Sure. Yeah, so first Australian-born uh, Anglican Archbishop of Sydney and, and, and in Australia, 1966 to 82. He was um, a, uh, you know, a pretty conservative figure in many respects. Mm-hmm. Uh and um, and very easy to I think cast on the side of you know um, all that was uh, to be discarded about the old world and um, so to be Archbishop in a you know in the sixties and in the seventies uh, when so much is changing around you an interesting interesting position to be in but I found him I found him to be um, really seriously trying to grapple with the changes taking place if you read his presidential addresses you know he, he's not. Um, afraid to engage with thorny issues. Um, mm-hmm. What I focused on with him was how he understood being Australian and being British. Mm-hmm. He had a very strong attachment to Britishness personally and as sort of the guardian of the the, the Protestant faith and, um, and at the same time had a really strong concern for Australia's engagement with Asia, um, developing its strong sense of its its purpose in the region and so forth. So, again, not easily put into a box there. What I found difficult to – I mean, not, not difficult, that's the wrong word, surprising, as I was reading your chapter there, um, I don't think the members of our church would know if I'm a monarchist or a Republican. You know? <laughs> um, that, that they wouldn't know, I don't think, because I don't think I've made statements along those lines. But you were in no doubt that Marcus Lane was a monarchist. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and in no doubt on a number of other issues that kind of looked back to fondness to, I mean, you didn't use the word colony. You used that kind of British empire kind of, yeah. 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 So he, I think he certainly, you know, he was a creature of his time. He wasn't actually that out of step with a lot of other clergy at the time and, and others in, in feeling a real sense of abandonment by Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the 60s. Interesting, you know, the Australian newspaper, its first editorial in 1964, um, said that we feel as never before abandoned by our mother. I mean, the, the sense of Australia no longer being a British nation was, was a real source mm. of crisis and of a, a lost identity um, uh, well beyond just the churches. So I think he was, he was wrestling with these things in step with other people. Um, I think he had a strong sense of, as I said, guarding that inheritance. So, for instance, in 1970, you know, Pope, Pope Paul came, the first papal visit mm. to Australia, and um, and he was invited to go to an ecumenical prayer service. It was quite a kerfuffle. Yeah, that's right. And he just felt that he, he couldn't do that um, uh, and be true to that um, that Protestant heritage. Can tell us about the reaction to that, to when he said, I'm not going to go and pray with the Pope? Yeah, I think he, um, you know, he, he received the reaction I, I expect you'd, you'd expect. So a lot of people viewed him as just totally out of step with um, the ecumenical spirit, um, and really focusing on things that divide rather than things that unite. It's interesting though, he, you know, he was free I mean, for his. I admire him. Yeah, I, I think mean, justification a... by faith matters. Exactly. Justin Welby's kind of getting it wrong. I think. Well, there's a conviction there, and it's born of history. You know, it was the it was the 450th anniversary uh, of um, the English martyrs, and Pope Paul had just canonised um, uh, some of the Catholic martyrs. So I think he um, he really. He, re- he knew his history and he knew the things that he had to hold firm on. And uh, interestingly, though, he had a really good relationship with uh, Cardinal Gilroy, the mm-hmm. Catholic Archbishop. Productive working relationship. Very productive working relationship. So, again, um, he's not a, a figure trying to stir up um, dissent, uh, d- dissensions and divisions, uh, but one who had a strong sense of conviction. Mm. I, I must say I was a little gobsmacked by, and I'll read you this quote and get you to react, um, and... Um, uh, I welcome, this is Marcus Lone, I welcome, this is your thesis, I welcome the fresh cultural influence of post-war non-British immigrants. Well, while I welcome the fresh cultural influence of post-war non-British immigrants, I hope that our Australian population will always have a substantial proportion of people of British descent. Um, uh, and I thought, oh, my daughter's just... Married a young man um, whose Chinese parents fled Vietnam as teenage refugees, and um, I just was a little gobsmacked by that quote from him. Yeah, yeah. Past the foreign country, <laughs> um, they do things differently there. Yeah, and I, th- I think you know that's the task of the historian to say what 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 shaped that view. Mm. Um, even if you don't agree with it, and certainly, I think you know, he he could have had views on that, but I think the the um, the, the trends were well and truly underway. But I think what he was getting at there to to view that sympathetically was um, we need to have a strong sense of our cultural inheritance um, that is strong enough to absorb difference there. Mm. So I think that's probably what he would have said if pressed on that. But um, but yeah, this was a period of so much change that was really unsettling for people. Mm. Um, so you've got Fred Nile kind of going to the barricades. You've got Marcus Lone um, longing for the crown and the British flag. Um, and, well, over on the left you've got um, uh, the Jesus movement. So mm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this was this was a lot of fun. I loved, uh, you know, going through the archives and, and interviewing um, people like John Smith, the founder of you know, the God Squad in Australia. John John Hurt. You, you um, talked to him. Yeah, I did. It was wow, a real privilege. He's died now, I think. He has. Yeah, yeah. it's it's um, 
it was it was a really interesting experience. I went and met him down at his house near um, near Geelong, and uh, and I you know caught the bus there and turned up. Uh, all ready to go with all my questions. And uh, he met me in the driveway in his Harley Davidson, you know, um, tracksuit and his hair down to his waist and he's polishing his bikes. And, you know, and we spent, I think, three hours before we got onto the conversation and he's offering me his homebrew. Really yeah. <laughs> wonderful character uh, and was very well, generous. He wrote but... a book in the, the 80s. Yeah. What was that called? Um... Yeah, several books, but one of them was called Advance Australia That's Wear. Yeah, yeah. And so, so you know, on the left, um, you might assume that they were just, you know, let's forget about this national bus- nationalist business that's, that's really, um, that's looking to the past and, uh, and so forth. But actually, the Jesus people were really concerned with the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they organized this big protest festival come music festival <laughs> outside Old Parliament House in 1973 when Whitlam's elected. And they, uh, you know, and they basically say this is a time of, of significant change mm-hmm. in what it means to be Australian. We're mm-hmm. excited about this, uh, and we think that we um, that Jesus has a place in in the nation. And so, so the Jesus people, um, who yeah, I think you could say we're on on the left end of the spectrum there mm-hmm. in some respects, but um, most of the leaders emerged from very kind of traditional uh, evangelical stables, mm-hmm. and uh, and what they were really interested in was. How do we um, relate the radical claims of Jesus? They called themselves radical disciples. They wanted to go back to the radics, the mm-hmm. root. Mm-hmm. How do we relate New Testament Christianity to the to the environment we find ourselves in mm-hmm. in the sixties and seventies? And nothing was off limits. You know, they had these drop-in centre um, mm-hmm. communities all over the place. Um, you know, West Ride, uh, where I live, was was the first one, the House of the New World, and they'd invite Jack Mundy to come and talk about the green bands and they'd invite the Hare Krishnas to learn more about what's going on in their movement and they'd have these intensive um, seminars on, on the New Testament and they were really trying to um, be very conscientious in relating New Testament Christianity to the, the challenges of the day. And, and yet... Um, they couldn't help but think in kind of Christian nationalist terms as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tried to create this, you know, sort of a forms of worship and liturgy and so forth that were distinctively Australian. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they Gum had tree a, theology. Yeah, that's right, a gum leaf theology. And it's kind of, you look back at anything, it's a bit, <laughs> makes you cringe a bit. But, you know, it was, it was conscientious. I had a com- uh, conference, I think, in 1978 called uh, Football, um, kangaroos, meat pies, and Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, and they produced, you know, versions of the Psalms and prayers and things. And, and, and they had, you know, they had a bit of reach. 1985, the top selling book in ABC bookshops was called, um, the day the grog ran out and other stories from the big book. And so wow. they're really trying to, you know, a bit like some of the things Kel Richards has done yeah, more recently, yeah. trying to adapt, um, the scriptures for, an Australian ear. And, um, and while a lot of it, I think, couldn't help but fall into an outdated view of what it meant to be Australian, you know, most of us are urban and mm. multicultural and mm. so forth, there was, there was something about that, um, yeah, that real desire to relate the New Testament to um, the language, the motifs, the questions of the day mm. and to contribute to what it meant to be Australian in, um, in, a, in a new world. So if I go to your conclusion... What now is the place of Christianity in Australian civic culture? <laughs> Just a small question. A small question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, I, I, the past is my area of specialty. But uh, <laughs> look, I, I, think, um, I think that 
we do well to understand our history mm. in that the changes that we're witnessing now are a rapid and, and unsettling, I think, for all of us in many ways. Um, they're not new. We've been through periods of crises in the past, mm-hmm. and the 60s and 70s, I think, is a really interesting period to learn from about the diversity of ways in which we engage with culture. And the fact that evangelicals showed up for the nation, they really cared about mm. what it meant to be Australian. They thought that Australia had a, you know, a vocation, that mm. it mattered um, how we thought of ourselves together, which I think is quite admirable. And in many ways, perhaps we've lost that um, today. Um, I think that the, you know, you had Greg Sheridan on the podcast mm. a few weeks ago. I think he, he captures it nicely that there are elements of Australian society that's you know, Christian, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the language that we use, even if we aren't aware of it, is deeply uh, imbued with Christian, um, with, with, with scripture mm-hmm. and um, the kind of beliefs we have about human rights and what have you. And you, you can't get but through um, through the Christian story. And, um, and there are elements that are post-Christian where we're trying to actively push that aside and the elements that are pre-Christian where we're trying to, where, you know, I work with young people and the utter unfamiliarity with Jesus and the fascination with him, mm. I think, presents a wonderful opportunity in this time as well. Um, so I think, um, yeah, it's interesting there. And at the same time, I think, last comment on that is that I think Australia and Australians, we're also in a, a time of crisis where we don't really know who we are. Mm. So it's not like Christians are peculiarly afflicted with a sense of change and uncertainty we're all and that was the that was the experience of the 60s and 70s and i think because of that and when everything's up up in the air um if christians can be clear about their distinctiveness um if they can um be able to you know collaborate and cooperate well with with others um and distance themselves in other ways and be flexible about their Mm. posture um, then they can actually have an influence in our society well beyond um, their, their numbers and, um, and an influence for real good in helping us think about and um, chart a new course for um, where Australia will advance into the future. Mm. Hugh, thanks so much for coming in and sharing this with us. My great pleasure, Dominic. Hugh, um, he published uh, this book, uh, well, he published his PhD in 2014 and uh, I read it then and now it's available in well, hard copy for only $250, soft copy for 70 bucks. Um, but you can get a discount till the end of this month and uh, we'll link to that, um, uh, to the place where you can buy it from uh, on the uh, show notes below. Thanks for joining us on The Pastor's Heart. Thanks, Hugh Chilton. Uh, he's a historian at Scots College in Sydney and it's been great talking to him about his PhD, Evangelicals and the End of Christendom. You've been with us on The Pastor's Heart and we will look forward to your company next Tuesday after. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.